One of my favorite pastimes as a child, maybe some of yours too, was hidden pictures. Remember hidden pictures? You go to the doctor's office, you go to the dentist's office. I imagine they still have these in dentist offices today. Highlights magazine, hidden pictures, right? By the time I had children of my own, there was Where's Waldo? Remember Where's Waldo? And we've all seen those pictures where you look at it and you see one thing and then you look at it again or you look at it long enough and you see something totally different. You know what I'm talking about? Is it a bird or is it a, uh, a rabbit? Is it an old lady uh, or a really young woman? Is it clouds, just a random cloud formation or spots of ink on the page or Jesus? You seen those? We've all seen pictures like that. Sometimes it takes more than a second look to see the second thing. Sometimes you never see the second picture at all. And that was Nicodemus in today's story from the Gospel of John. Nicodemus appears only in this Gospel and in the very familiar story before us, he appears suddenly at the beginning of chapter 3, and then he disappears after verse uh, 10. But Jesus keeps on talking from verses 11 to 21. This structure of the story is typical of John's gospel. The story comes to us in two very important parts. A dialogue, and then a discourse by Jesus alone. The two parts overlap, and they intertwine. And it's that interplay between the two, the two elements of the story that makes it hard to understand. Sometimes it's impossible. It's possible to miss that there are two things. It's possible to miss it all together. And that would be like missing the rabbit, you know, only seeing the duck. It'd be like never finding Waldo, never spotting Jesus among the inky clouds. If we don't read or hear these scriptures closely enough, we might miss something essential about Jesus. We might overlook something crucial about the season of Lent. You see, the way John tells this story, the way it unfolds before us, allows us to experience Jesus for ourselves. I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way. We go with Nicodemus to meet with Jesus. We witness the back and forth, the dialogue between them. It's like we're listening in. In fact, the narrative reflects our own encounter with Jesus, back and forth. We come, like Nicodemus, a mixture of both good and bad, if you want to put it that way, positive and negative characteristics. 
Nicodemus seeks out Jesus. For most of us, that's a very positive trait. Go, Nicodemus. He respects Jesus. He treats Jesus with respect. He approaches him with dignity. He acknowledges, look at it again, he acknowledges that Jesus comes from God. But on the other hand, Nicodemus' regard for Jesus and his impulse to seek him out are based upon the miraculous signs that Jesus has performed. And if you flip back just one page to chapter 2 in John, you'll see we know that Jesus would not entrust himself to people whose faith is based on signs. I said, we know this. That's exactly what Nicodemus says, too. Speaking as a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, he is certain about what he thinks he knows. And he uses the royal we, you know, the, the plural. We know, he says, we know that no one could do these things you do if God weren't in on it. But Jesus is about to upend this certainty about what God can and cannot do. As John tells it, Nicodemus makes no more pronouncements in this passage or in the whole rest of the Bible. He only asks questions. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 4. That's all Nicodemus has to say. When Jesus asked him to let go of what he knows, does that offer apply to us too? Does it apply to you? Nicodemus very famously under, misunderstands Jesus' metaphor about being born again. And that's because the one word that Jesus uses there, the word anothen in the Greek, means two different things at the same time. Nicodemus is certain about one of those things. So he discounts the possibility of the other. In fact, as capable and as wise as he must have been, it, it seems like he just cannot even comprehend a second meaning. And here's the thing. A lot of Christians do the same thing. A lot of Christians, when they reduce Jesus' words, that little phrase, born again, to a single, simple slogan or a litmus test for one kind of Christian experience, they do the same thing. 
If you have a copy in front of you, look at verse 3 again. What does your translation say? Did Jesus say, you must be born again? Or did he say, you must be born from above? The answer is, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he said both at the same time. Fixating on only one meaning repeats the same mistake Nicodemus made. When we do that, we reduce that piece of scripture to a label. It makes faith more about us than about Jesus. It makes Christianity more about the crosses we wear as jewelry than about the cross Jesus died on. And that's a mistake. And that brings us to Lent. Lent, the season of the church year which focuses on sin and darkness and death. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, it says. And so do we. Because night happens to be another word that can mean more than one thing. It can mean more than one thing at the same time. Now, Bible scholars and commentators, much sharper than I, disagree about all this. But I have no doubt myself that Nicodemus arranged to meet with Jesus at night. And I mean literally in the dark. I have no doubt that he did that to protect himself. That makes perfect sense to me. But just as Jesus' words about rebirth balance two very different meanings, the Gospel writer John consistently uses night as a metaphor for separation. Specifically, separation from God. <laughs> and again, I hope you... I hope you how ironic is that? Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel. And he comes to Jesus separated from God. We do too. This whole story shifts at verse 11. That's where it goes from being a dialogue between these two men to a monologue. Again, if you've got a, a copy in front of you, look closely. And if you're not going to do that now, that's okay. Uh, check it out later today, maybe this afternoon. There's no big football game today. Just uh, look in your own Bible. Maybe look in more than one Bible. Look at John 3.11 and look specifically at the punctuation. There was no punctuation in the Greek <laughs> manuscript. This makes it pretty challenging for translators. In a copy you're looking at, does Jesus speak all those words? Does Jesus say in your Bible, 
Does Jesus say John 3.16? Does Jesus talk about light and darkness in verses 19 through 21? Does he say that people have loved darkness more than light? That everyone who does bad things shuns the light so as not to be exposed? Does Jesus say that to Nicodemus? Is Nicodemus still there? Does he say it to us? You bet. The answer to that question is yes. <laughs> Whenever we finally seek him out, whatever time of the, the physical day or night, like Nicodemus, we all come to Jesus from darkness. And Lent reminds us of that. Forty days remind us of the darkness we come from. If you were here Wednesday evening for our Ash Wednesday service, we put ashes on your forehead and reminded you, you are dust. And to dust you shall return. It's dark there. Lent reminds us of the darkness we carry, the darkness we bring to Jesus. Forty days remind us of our need to repent, of our need for a Savior, our need to be regenerated into a new life. Forty days and forty nights like the 40 days of the Old Testament flood, like the 40 years that Moses spent in the wilderness of Midian before going back to Egypt to lead the Israelites back into 40 more years of wilderness wandering. 40 days like Jesus himself spent in the wilderness before starting to perform the signs and wonders that got the attention of people like Nicodemus. As the teacher of Israel, that's what Jesus calls him, Nicodemus would know about Moses and the wilderness. He would know, he would know without even having to have uh, the scroll or, or uh, a book in front of him, he would know by heart stories about the darkness that his ancient ancestors came from. The darkness they carried with them through the desert. He would know that weird story we just read from the book of Numbers. And guess what? The key to that story, the reason Jesus recalls it for Nicodemus, is tied up in another word, a single word that bears two meanings. As the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. The physical act of raising up is perfectly understandable. Everybody gets that. 
But the word Jesus uses there also implies an act of exaltation, praise, glory, an act of rejoicing. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus at night that he, Jesus, must be both literally raised up even on a pole and at the same time worshipped, glorified, exalted, praised. Again, the way those, the way those things are layered and intermingled makes it hard to understand. Because it means that there is no exaltation. There is no glory. There is no praise. There is no Easter without the crucifixion. Without the cross. Now, in fairness, there's no way that Nicodemus could have known that. Right? Nicodemus lived on the other side of Easter, except he should have known the numbers story well enough to understand that when the Israelites finally repented, God, through Moses, provided healing and new life. And I want you to notice how God did that. The people asked Moses to pray that God would take away the snakes that were killing them. Take away the snakes. Is that what God did? No, he did not. God didn't take away the snakes. What did he do instead? Instead, he used the likeness of a snake, the very thing that caused the people to suffer, the very thing that caused them to die, he used that as a means of their relief. That's what Moses raised up in the wilderness. A reminder of their need of God. And that reminder has to be lifted up so that those people would have to look up for their healing. To look up for their salvation. Which comes from above. From above. Do you hear it? Nicodemus may have come to understand Jesus, after all, 
He shows up twice more in John's gospel. He shows up defending Jesus before the Sanhedrin and later in John 19. He shows up helping Joseph of Arimathea, another member of the Sanhedrin too, who helped to bury Jesus. They had to put him there before the Sabbath. And this was a Passover Sabbath, or like a super Sabbath Sabbath. So they had to get it done. They had to put him in there in the most profound darkness there is. Before the glorious morn of Easter could happen. We actually sang about that earlier in the service too. Lent reminds us that the cross has to happen before the resurrection. Lent tells us that sometimes suffering is the only path to saving. It's the only path to healing. And often that road, that road to wellness and light runs smack dab through the darkness. There are 40 days in Lent, but there are also six, six special days, like this one. This happens to be one, a sun day. Boy, I wish it were sunnier outside right now. But it's still light, right? You can tell it's not night. These six Sundays in the Lenten season, we temporarily, it's like, uh, it's like we temporarily kind of roll back the darkness for a moment. Six days when we remember what Jesus tried to show Nicodemus, that light has already come into the world. He says that in verse 19. John 3, 19. The light has already come. And in verse 21 he says, every day, we can choose to do what is true. To do what is true. But we can only do that. We can only do that by looking up to the crucified one. We can only do that by meeting the light of the world in the darkness. And the good news of this day, the good news of every day, no matter what darkness you're in, no matter what darkness you're coming from, no matter what darkness you're carrying to, you're meeting with Jesus. He is always there. Always. The light. Thanks be to God.